Hello, and welcome to the Development Debrief with Katherine Van Sickle, the stories-based podcast that interviews donors, thought leaders, and professionals in the field of fundraising. This week, we learn from Andy Rothman Noonan from the perspective of a nonprofit CEO. Andy talks to us about the changes his organization made to expand their mission and therefore grow their fundraising needs and goals. Andy Rothman Noonan is the president of the National Science and Technology Medals Foundation. Over the last 10 years, he's been responsible for various leadership and oversight responsibilities, including management of staff and programming, development and fundraising efforts, and ensuring that the foundation's mission is evident in all of its work. Andy has a deep personal connection to the foundation and its broader effort to build a more diverse, inclusive, and equitable future in STEM. He recognizes his privilege and his responsibility as an ally to empower, enable, and serve his team, its mission, and the communities that can be positively affected by the NSTMF's efforts. Andy earned a bachelor's degree from Trinity College in Hartford in 2009, and he resides in Silver Spring, Maryland with his better half, Julia, their son, Nolan, and their dog, Lulu. Now let's get started. Hey listeners, it's Keith from Evertrue. Evertrue is the end-to-end solution for insight, outreach, and analytics for higher ed advancement and stewardship teams around the world. Recently, we launched Evertrue Studios, Advancement's very first media hub, where subscribers have access to over 100 hours of free, on-demand original series and podcasts, all created with fundraisers in mind. We're thrilled to feature the development debrief on Evertrue Studios Podcast Network. Check us out at evertrue.com backslash studios. Andy, welcome to the debrief. Thank you very much. It's great to be on here. You are the kind of leader who does a little bit of everything, fundraising included. But before we dive into that, why don't you tell us about the National Science and Technology Medals Foundation? Happily. Um, yeah, and, and I'm glad to be here. It really is wonderful. I appreciate the opportunity. So the National Science and Technology Medals Foundation is a DC, uh, Washington, D.C.-based 501c3. Um, we were founded, and I think it's important to sort of go back to our founding mission. We were founded in 1990 with the primary mission of celebrating um, the work and lives of the laureates, the National Medal of Science and National Medal of Technology and Innovation. Um, these are two awards given out by, picked by the President of the United States um, to multiple people across those two medals. And they're basically individuals, teams, and companies that exemplify um, leading innovation and leading minds in science, technology, engineering, math, and medicine. And, and it's really their work has saved millions, produced billions in capital, and and really, more importantly, changed the world for for the better. Um, and so our primary responsibility at our founding, and 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 we, we continue to do this, but our primary responsibility at our founding was to, to, to host alongside with the White House, the United States Patent and Trademark Office, and the National Science Foundation, um, a day-long set of festivities that honor these individuals and their accomplishments. And that included an East Room ceremony uh, where the president gave remarks and handed out the medals, um, kind of similar to what you're seeing right now in terms of the you know, National Medal of Humanities or National Medal of the Arts. And then, you know, later in the evening, we would host a black tie gala uh, with about 500 people. And part of that gala program was we would short uh, produce short videos, sort of biopics about each laureate, their accomplishments, their personal experiences, and really gives everyone there an opportunity to celebrate the individuals for why they're there. They're celebrating why they're there and and really, really being there to, to celebrate scientific innovation and leadership. So, so that gala, yeah. is that like the culmination each year? 
Well, <laughs> we'd be lucky if it happened each year. Um, as you oh. can probably imagine, the president's schedule is pretty unpredictable. Um, and and it's that's a good question. Kind of gives me a good segue. So in 2016, it became clear that the incoming administration wasn't as keen on this program as maybe the prior administrations were. And it became clear that this wasn't something they wanted to necessarily move forward with in earnest. And so we were forced to really take a hard look at who we were as an organization, um, given that this gala was not only our biggest program and our most visible program, it was our only fundraising vehicle. It basically generated enough revenue to fund our operations every year as if it were to happen, since we were a pretty small outfit for a while. And so once we heard that the admin wasn't particularly interested in seeing this program continue or just wasn't sort of that engaged about it, we went out and re realized we had an opportunity to affect positive change in maybe another way. We had created some great relationships with these laureates. They're exceptional people, but um, they are mostly homogenous, um, older white men. And we felt that we had an opportunity to one, bring a majority of those laureates to campuses, perhaps undergraduate campuses, as well as expand our definition of what it was to be a STEM leader, meaning that we weren't going to limit ourselves to just the laureates, the middle of science and middle of tech. That happened sort of we got the sort of word and the inkling that that was not going to be the interest of the administration to continue with this program or get this program up and running. Um, and so when we heard that, we really started to brainstorm about, well, what could we do that was, uh, you know, that could create more access points for people to get to know the laureates and get to know more STEM leaders. And so we started essentially a, a, a fireside chat style uh, discussion series where we brought STEM leaders to undergraduate and graduate school campuses across the country um, that program was launched in 2017 with three events that featured Vint Cerf, who's the um, co-architect of the internet, Shirley Ann Jackson, who was a leading mind in both academia and, and sort of nuclear regulatory and as a physicist, and then Jody Simone, who's a carbon 3D, um, 3D printing expert and, and, and a, a nanotech expert. We found in that first year that one, going to MIT, Stanford, and Georgetown were great, but those schools get, I mean, Stanford has a Nobel Prize parking spot. So those students have an incredible amount of access. Um, so we thought, well, let's expand to maybe institutions that don't get as much access, don't get as many of these individuals on their campus, and let's bring them there, as well as let's make sure we're intentional about who's on stage, um, both in terms of representation, in discipline, in background, experience, um, really emphasizing this the importance of diversity and inclusion within the STEM community. And through these conversations, we did from 2016 to 2019 in person, we did 25 schools, 40 individuals, um, over 20,000 students engaged. And what we were hearing consistently, uh, unfortunately, was that academia in STEM majors was consistently falling short of convening conversations like the conversations we were convening, it, convening and doing it consistently, weekly, mm -hmm. monthly, what have you. And on top of that, the feedback we were getting, which was resoundingly positive, and the students were looking, they were just sort of thirsting for this knowledge, this access. And we weren't just talking about the technical aspects of the impact of the work of the individual that's on stage. This person was sharing their personal stories, the, the, the failures, the discrimination. I mean, we were having blunt conversations of racism in the lab, sexism in the lab, sexism in, corporate, in the corporate environment. And... The students needed to hear it. I mean, we had students in tears. We had students talking, you know, candidly about their personal experiences with their own PIs. Um, and, and we thought there was maybe an opportunity to do something more than just a listening circuit uh, or, or a speaking circuit. And really looking at the statistics of the attrition rates of students from underrepresented groups and STEM majors, which we're talking about maybe around 
Hmm. We thought maybe if we could create an ex- a program and an experience where we were creating consistent access to people that became mentors in individual STEM majors' lives, we could help combat against that attrition rate. And we could do it in a way that supplemented the academic experience, that worked in partnership with the academic institution, um, worked in partnership with their curriculum. We developed a curriculum and delivered it in a manner where the students felt like they were seen and heard in a way that the experience was their experience, where they could really dictate what they needed out of the program. They could provide us feedback in a timely manner, and we could deliver something that addressed their feedback um, and really be more sort of flexible in terms of a delivery of a program that truly met and exceeded scholar student needs. And the sort of manifestation of that program is called InSTEM. It uh, was launched in 2020 at Howard University with 15 first-year students. Um, It now has 90 students in the program. We have added uh, a second campus, the University of Texas at Arlington, and we're adding a third Bay Area campus this fall. And in tandem with the launch of that program, we expanded our mission pretty dramatically. Um, And that our mission now, in terms of its expansion, really, the primary mission of this organization is to build a more diverse, inclusive, and equitable STEM community. And so the in-STEM program is really the flagship effort to do that. Um, the unscripted series still is a, a really important component of who we are and our identity as, as an organization, but the instant program has really become something that has allowed us to really envision a future where we have been a, a notable voice and catalyst for significant change um, in the STEM community from a diversity, inclusion, and equity perspective, but more importantly, the, the sort of calling out of the status quo and the gatekeeping that occurs in, in a community that has been kind of immune to the critiques of um, racism and discrimination for whatever reason, for a, probably a set of reasons, but um, we're, we're, we're really excited about the growth of the program. We're excited about the students' um, experience in the program and how, how fulfilling they, they are, the experiences that they're having that are, are so fulfilling for them. Um, the mentor community is amazing. It's an incredible group. And so now today, you know, we serve two roles. Uh, we serve the White House. Whenever they decide they're going to do a gala, we're going to, you know, announce uh, laureates. We're going to make sure we honor our founding mission. Uh, but in terms of long-term and lasting impact, this in-STEM program and our and our quest to uh, build a more diverse, inclusive, and equitable STEM community um, is really kind of our primary our primary um, effort. Well, my next question was, what has compelled you to stay for over a decade? But I think yeah. you really just got that answer loud and clear. Yeah, no, I think I think I I think I re- sort of showed my cards there. Um, <laughs> you know, I I think there the other aspect of yeah, I mean it's 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 seeing the impact firsthand with the students uh, that that'll make my week and month and year. I mean, being able to go to the campuses and meet with them, talk to them over Zoom. You know, I'm st- we're still a small organization, so I do work day to day in the program management um, section. So you know, it is it's really fun for me. It's a nice change of pace from some of the admin work I have to do. But that is really kind of the core driver for why I get out of bed in the morning and and being excited about what I do. The other side of it is I do enjoy development a lot. Um, I enjoy sort of stewarding someone who has never heard of you before to a point where you're actually asking them for a, a contribution, a significant contribution. And that is a quite a fulfilling experience when you can take someone and you can even see it happening in the room, perhaps. It's like you can take someone from being like, who are you to, wow, that's really cool. Let's talk more. And that's a that's a exciting. It's kind of invigorating to sort of see that happen right in front of you and know based upon your research and your work and your sort of prospect, you know, prospect work, um, 
you know, what are their values? What are their needs? What are their principles? How can you deliver a pitch that that speaks to who they are as a person? Um, and then deliver on that promise and make them feel like the money they provided, the, the goodwill they provided actually had the impact that that they intended it to have. Um, and that's that's also a really exciting portion of what I do and why I'm, I've stayed here for the last 10 years as well. So based on your previous model with this culminating gala, you, it sounds like had gifts that were higher at the top of the pyramid, but maybe not as many. Mm-hmm. And you've now needed to think about building a more sustainable pipeline and sort of current use annual giving those hundred, that was three, four figure gifts. So how are you addressing that as you shift? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question. So you know, what was interesting was that when we were only doing the gala and that was our only program, we had no stewardship method. We had no additional impact to claim. It was a one-off. It happened, it ended. And then we didn't really have any reason to follow up with the contributors who paid for tables or sponsorships, et cetera. And so unfortunately we lost ground in terms of the ability to sort of take an incredibly visible and incredibly successful event and kind of use that as a as an entry point for a lot of potential donors, whether it's corporate foundations, corporations, or even individuals who sponsored tables. You know, we're excited about the prospect of a gala happening while we have InSTEM up and running because that's yeah. going to become an important stewardship that's be effort. Amazing. It's going to be really cool. Uh, I can cover happens. it on the debris. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, exactly, exactly. I'll have to sleep for a few weeks, but yes, absolutely, we can cover it on the debris. Um, so, because we sort of lost ground there, we. We don't have that churn of like, you know, taking someone from a, a small gift size of maybe $100 or $50 and really moving them into something larger if they have the means. And we know that that's an engine. That's an important component of, mm-hmm. of uh, any successful organization, coupled with the challenge of the fact that the InSTEM program is delivered to students who are currently an undergrad. And if you want to say, you want to compare that to sort of the academic institution model, like upon graduation, every student and possibly their parents, and even during their undergrad years, their parents are being um, reviewed or evaluated as possible donors. And we are pretty sensitive to that. I think it's it's important effort, but we are sensitive to using the students as prospective donors as they're still an undergrad or you know one year out. Now, that being said, in time, um, we would hope that we could keep the students in our um, community through some alumni program- programming and whatnot, and they would eventually want to make some contributions to support a program that they were a beneficiary of. But it is still something that we really haven't cracked the code on in terms of when and where we can engage those undergrads as potential donors. And if we engage too early, do we turn them off from the fact that like, oh, did you only just want me in this program so you could turn me into a donor, which you know can be oftentimes a, 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 a thing that's said uh, or thought. Mm-hmm. So what we've tried and it's, it's not, with varying levels of success is like separating from Giving Tuesday and having a separate giving day and trying out language where we're breaking down sort of dollar for dollar impact, exactly where your $1 goes in terms of helping the individual student. And we've seen some positive feedback that that actually has some resonance, but because we don't have sort of an existing community that is familiar with our, as familiar with our asks as say an organization that had that sort of monthly ask campaign or a monthly gathering campaign, we haven't had as much success in terms of growing that demographic. That being said, it's something we're going to continue to pursue because we know that if we can't build out that lower part of the pyramid, you know, we're, we're really kind of 
playing, you know, we're playing without, with less of a net than say other organizations, because if you yeah. we lose one donor, we lose 20% of our revenue or 10% of our revenue, which is a pretty massive hit, given that our budget usually is somewhere between 1.5 and 1.8 million a year. Um, so it's something that we, again, haven't cracked the code on, but we're sort of pulling and pushing at different levers to see what can sort of gather. And, and while also recognizing like, it's a churn. It's constant. You just have to be consistently on the minds of the individuals that are familiar with who you are and, and just make sure that you don't sort of disappear for three months. Um, and you just sort of have those touch points, those newsletters, um, those email check-ins, those social media campaigns that, that keep them, keep you in sort of in the front part of their mind. Um, and we're hoping, and we, we think we have um, some good reason to believe that in time, they'll start to pay off. What's the messaging around those smaller gifts? How are you conveying that that piece? Yeah, of yeah. So as part of, and it's really kind of tangible, right? So it's as part of a scholar's participation in the program, they receive a stipend, um, which allows them to sort of offset some costs. College is expensive. Um, it's not anything dramatic, but it's certainly enough to sort of help offset that those those sort of unrelated expenses to books and whatnot. We also deliver student success kits, so. That included during the pandemic, you know, microphones, high quality headsets uh, for um, high quality earphones and stuff like that, high quality webcams so they could participate in the meetings. And so we were able to say, look, give one dollar, it goes to supporting this particular asset within the student success kit. You know, I think, <laughs> you know, we 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 try and sort of we 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 would try and work more towards like fifty dollars actually buys one set of headphones, which is kind of a more tangible link rather than one fiftieth of a headphone if it's one dollar. Um, but that's sort of the messaging that we would use uh, when we were when we were sort of trying to build out or while we try and build that lower part of the pyramid. And how have you kept up morale? I mean, what you're doing is not easy. You are, you know, it's not a deadlift, but it's close to it. You know, how are you yeah. keeping the morale of your team and and optimism up and hope up? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's sort of three things and, and, and it's it sort of. There's a concept of the no, right? And and I always say a no is actually better than no answer, no response. Because at least at least you know. Yeah. And you can move on. You don't have to waste keystrokes. You don't have to waste, you know, and if it's a no, not right now, then you set up an email reminder and in four months you hit them with something. So if you know that it's a no, then you can actually start to work on something else, start to work on a different possible lead, start to work on a different set of language and messaging for building out that that lower, um, that sort of small dollar donations. So that's one thing. So I, that's so, so what I always repeat both to myself and to my team is like, no is actually better than no answer. And so it's you got to know, exactly. You got to know, it's great. You, I'm glad you got to know. You actually got them to respond, which is a victory in, in many yeah. ways. That's number one. Number two, those aren't personal. So they're if you truly believe that the program has values, you truly believe that the instant program has value, which it does, the data, it, the data is un, undeniable um, and it has impact and it's delivering on our mission. Then that no is not a, a um, is not exemplary of the fact that our program doesn't have value. It's probably more to do with the person who said no than you yourself. Um, yeah, and there are moments when you make mistakes, you slip up, you don't say the right thing, or maybe you call them the wrong name in an email, and that happens. People make mistakes, but and that may turn them off from wanting to work with you, which sometimes is what they do. But you know, you don't know what's going on in the background, and so you have to also be empathetic to the fact that like needs change and 
personal life experiences happen and priorities change. And that's not because you did something wrong or the organization did something wrong or the program doesn't have value. It's because that individual has got other things going on and that's okay too. Um, all those things are sort of the matter of life. I mean, I- So humanizing I the no. Yes, exactly. Humanizing the no, well said. And, and you know, I, I started as a recruiter. I did 18, uh, almost two years um, as a recruiter for a finance and accounting um, uh, executive search firm in Boston. And I learned sort of three main things. One, I learned how to pick up a phone and call basically anyone, like calling main lines with a, a name of an individual. I had no idea who they were and asking for their, you know, their, their desk number. Um, and then convincing them essentially over the phone that they should consider changing jobs and that even though they don't know me and I'm just a voice that they should trust me that I have <laughs> their best interests at heart. And, you know, you're going to get, you know, it was like a hundred dials and you're going to get 10% positive response. That's the goal. Right. And even then you're kind of, that's an unbelievable week. Right. And so when you get used to nose and you're doing it sort of out of nowhere, you're coming literally out of nowhere, out of the sky, essentially. Um, you stop to, you stop worrying about why they're saying no. And you start realizing like the no is just their no. It's their no. It's not your no. Um, and so I think that like that learning that and learning that experience allowed me to understand like, yeah, of course. Like if I get 50 no's in a week over, over contribution to the foundation, yeah, it's hard not to take that personally. It's like, what are we missing? Right. And you see like, you know, you see organizations you've targeted as prospects give something a bunch of money to somewhere else. And you're like, Ooh, why didn't we get that money? It's important to do that self-reflection, but most of the time it's just their problem, not yours. <laughs> and that's a good thing. That's an important compartmentalization that you can do to keep yourself saying, keeping yourself from getting frustrated from the nose um, and, and giving and lending yourself grace and time, right? Lending yourself the grace to be like, that had nothing to do with me. I did everything right. And even if I do anything right, maybe they're going to say no. And that is okay. And that's okay. Um, I, if there's anything that kind of gets me amped up in a negative way, it's not the no's. It's whether the stewardship process was done in a manner that was polite, it was effective, it wasn't pushy, and it respected the individual at its core value, um, at their core value. Yeah. And if we ever violate that trust or we ever sort of overpromise and underdeliver, that's when that's when things can go wrong. That's when the stewardship process was actually an air, you know, the the lack of stewardship or the lack of delivery or the delivery on the pledge. Um, it can be put in jeopardy. And that's when things can can that's when we should do some work and say, say, okay, where did this go wrong? How can we fix it? How can we make it better? Is it salvageable? And then moving from there. Sounds like a lot's happened since the pandemic yeah. at the yeah. foundation. So how are you looking into next year and knowing that this year was hard for a lot of people and you have really ambitious goals? Yeah. One of the things that we've really been able to, to do is, is take our committed and loyal donors and kind of in a very transparent way, walk them through how the pandemic has dramatically affected our ability to effectively fundraise. Now that we're coming back into person, there into in person, we are um, we have a number of efforts that are going to be more donor centric, um, where we're going to actually be hosting dinners and gatherings and really kind of emphasizing board level recruitment of of individual do donors um, and potential like advocates and and but 
in that time though, when we weren't able to even consider opportunities like that, it really changed sort of our expectations from a revenue perspective of what what we could fundraise off of the instem program right now by able by walking those the loyal donors the donors who have already bought in through that they really can understand deeply what we're going through and the sort of constrict sort of the mark the landscape contraction around philanthropy that has happened and they have been really generous in saying oh well let's support you through this and get you on the other side of this so that you have the opportunity to deliver those programs that kind of help accelerate and turn the volume up on new revenue. Um, so we have a couple organizations that kind of anchor our, 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 the expenses around our, our sort of annual operations. And then we are really able to sort of go out and be aggressive in terms of, you know, cold emails and large, you know, large um, individual donor effort campaigns. And, and those, the individual contributors, the donors, and the, the foundations, and even the corporate arms of found, of, of organizations have been very, um, or the foundation arms of corporations, I'm sorry, have been very generous in terms of understanding our needs and then looking at our instant program and saying, I don't want to see this program go away. This program has already had an incredible impact on the students. So really the program itself is sort of the saving grace when it comes to being able to ask for a little bit more out of our loyal base because they know that once we get on the other side of this, we're definitely going to be able to deliver on what we're saying we're going to deliver on. Um, and that, that has what been are the main very helpful. So, yeah. so you're, you're national. So where, where are the main hubs of donors and programs? Yeah. Bay area, a lot of Bay area. Um, we also have um, some corporate sponsors that are both local to the DC area, as well as internationally and nationally. And then we have a pretty solid representation in the mid Atlantic. So we have a, a, a number of Philly donors and, and, um, you know, South Jersey and whatnot. Um, that's where I'm from. So, you know, I think it's, it, but really the, the highest concentration is that Bay area. I mean, all more or less all up and down California. Uh, so you're there Valley. a lot. Yeah. I used to be. Yeah. Until, you know, I'm yeah. just, we're, but we will go be going out there a lot more for sure. Yeah. How big is your team? It is four total staff members. And, and then I work in partnership with our um, assistant director of development um, who is exceptional. Um, she got her start as a development professional for a think tank. And um, I've never seen anyone do sort of stewardship better, but do it in a way that's like, she never takes it personally. It's always just like, I'm going to do this and it's gonna be great. And she's a great balance against me who I'm far more emotional about why no's or no's. And she's able to be able to be like, like you said, Andy, a no is better than not no or non-response and a no is not personal. That so is a great like person that. to have on your yes, team. Wow. Absolutely. She's <laughs> exceptional. She really is. And then um, we have a director of the instant program. She's a PhD mathematics, uh, math sort of expert. She's exceptional. She has an unbelievable experience in higher ed and she's awesome. And then we have a program manager for the unscripted program. And she's going to be moving more into like a community relations role where she's going to be more on the ground with like student engagement in, for students in the program. There's a lot of things we learn from sort of the academic institutions that are most successful in terms of retaining and engaging students while they're still on campus. Um, and we've really kind of looked at that pretty hard and been like, okay, we need to really make sure that these students know they have another face, another advocate, another individual that can support them. So that's our team of four. That's who we are. Wow. So what are your top three priorities? Are you on the fiscal year? No, right. we're a calendar year. We're a calendar year fiscal year. So we've got still a few so months. Halfway so through. we're halfway through. Yeah. Yeah. Our three goals for this year, we want to raise one eight. We want to add 150K new revenue and we are launching, you know, we want to be able to launch successfully our third in STEM host site. And that 
is well on its way. So, yeah, so we're pretty excited about that. Yeah. Wow. Well, it's so much fun to hear about di- the ways different organizations work. And, you know, for me right now, I'm in a huge organization. So it's really inspiring hearing you talk about a team of four and all of the places you need to be all at once, all the things you need to do. Is there anything else we should know about the foundation? No, I mean, I mean, it, you know, if you want to check us out, our website's www.nationalmedals.org, N-A-T-I-O-N-A-L-M-E-D-A-L-S.org, not medals like the the metal, M-E-T-A-L-S, which sometimes <laughs> people get mixed up. Um, and uh, yeah, and then our instant program is is truly exceptional. I mean, check it out. It's it's um, the students are awesome. They're all incredible. And and we're in July. We're gonna host all of them with their mentors and 19 experts for a summit from July 27th to July 29th. And we've fully subsidized their travel and their stay. And so no student will ever have to pay out of pocket for anything. So you know we want to make sure we are eliminating or lowering all barriers of access and entry as we, as we, as we try and deliver something that, that gets the students excited about their work. So yeah, I mean, check us out. We always are looking for supporters. So again, I, I would, I'd be remiss if I didn't miss an opportunity to, uh, yeah, we need mentors. We absolutely need mentors and we need mentors from every industry. They don't have to be STEM. They can be STEM adjacent. They can be um, in STEM. They can also be completely outside of STEM. Um, but we always need mentors. Um, the, the, the success of the program is going to be reliant on committed individuals who understand the value of mentorship, but understand the work that is required to go into it. And sometimes that's not that bandwidth isn't available. But um, if there are people who are out there who have that time and that interest who want to support an incredible group of students, we happily will we'll walk them through how to do that. And we'd happily see them become a member of that community. Amazing. Andy, what do you know for sure? I was, you know, I was listening to somebody on a podcast previously and and I someone had the same, I, I was listening, I was thinking really hard about this question and I think I may have overthought it. Like, uh, which, you know, isn't new news for me. Try to enjoy everything. Just try to enjoy everything, even when it sucks. Just see if you can find a little bit of joy and that will make all the difference, both when you wake up in the morning, when you go to sleep at night, when you want to take a nap after lunch, but you got to work, just find some joy. And I think that that is something that was hard to seek out in uh, during the pandemic, but really kind of relying on that helped immensely. If you want to go seek a therapist, therapy helps. I go to therapy regularly. It's a good thing. Talk to someone who's a professional. That helps a lot too, but find joy. Joy is good. Joy helps. Thank you so much for joining us. I hope that people check out your website and it just sounds like you're leading an amazing organization. So I'm thank you. I'm so glad that I was able to do this. It was really uh I really appreciate you offering up the opportunity and and it's great to connect with another Trinity College alum. I really appreciate it. <laughs>